Our Father, there has been so much that has gone into what just took place. And um, our greatest dream would be that you would find pleasure in it. It is the gospel that we celebrate today. A gospel that tells us that though he was rich, he became poor so that we who were poor might be rich. And rich we are. Might all that is done in these next few minutes be something that just fills out of hearts that is that are greatly in love with the King of Kings. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. 14. And I'll begin reading in verse 3. And I can only uh, hope that the memory that was made for you was just as moving as it was for me. Follow as I read, beginning at verse 3 of Mark 14. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, oh, that endures forever. I want to begin this morning by telling you a story that I told several years ago. I thought it was appropriate to begin for the morning. It's a story about a tour group that was taking a tour through the home of the famed German composer Ludwig van Beethoven. As they made their way through the house, they came to the room which was called the conservatory and there the centerpiece was his piano. And uh, when they got there, the tour guide went over to the piano and almost in hushed and reverential tones 
pointed to the piano and said, and this was the master's instrument. About that time, a woman, a well-meaning but thoughtless woman, pushed her way from the back of the group towards the front, made her way to the piano bench, sat down, and immediately began to play one of Beethoven's great sonatas. She looked at the group and she said, I bet a lot of people love to play this piano. The tour guide went over to her and, and put his hands on hers and said, Madam, last summer, Ignace Paderewski was in a tour group. The group begged him to play this piano. But he refused and said, oh no, I'm not worthy to play the, great, the, the same keyboard as the great Beethoven. Because, ladies and gentlemen, as we all know, some things are almost too sacred to touch. You know, there are events and live, uh, texts and um, uh, stories about the life of Jesus Christ contained in the New Testament that are so sacred, so tender, so um, profound that one could almost wish that you could draw a curtain around it and, and uh, that the events behind the curtain would forever remain shrouded in mystery. In my opinion, this story that I've read is one such event. I've never preached this, this text before. Never. And I, and I wondered in the course of the week whether the Lord in his kind providence has saved this for an occasion such as this morning. This intuitive woman, Mary, guessed at something that the rest of the people, the rest of the twelve certainly had missed, although they had been told time and time and time again. She knew intuitively that these were the last days of the life of Jesus Christ. The, um, the event, the location of the event is identified as the home of Simon, Simon the leper. Now, obviously, ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to be having a meal in a home of a leper unless the leper had been cleansed. And then John adds in his account of this story that Lazarus, you remember Lazarus in John 11 who was raised from the dead, the, the brother of Mary, and uh, his home was in Bethany. Lazarus was also a part of this particular scene. But my point is, ladies and gentlemen, that in this event that I, that I think is almost too sacred for words, three of the main characters in this event are Mary, Simon the leper, and Lazarus. Imagine what the conversation around that table was like. Lazarus. Lazarus. What was it like when you were in that tomb for those three days? Towards the close of the meal, Mary finds her way to the back of the Savior's couch. She's bringing a, an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. <laughs> you know, we don't use those terms very much. We don't use the term spikenard. And when we use the term flask, it means something else. So I, I'm going to substitute some words we perhaps understand better. Perfume and vase. It just will communicate the same thing, but it's just words I think we're more familiar with. But Mary brings 
a vase that's full of perfume, very costly, very expensive perfume. So expensive, in fact, that Judas, who, by the way, uh, is identified by John, Judas, who likes to put a, a price on everything, who lives life with a calculator in his hand, Judas valued it as worth a year's wages. Very costly stuff, but nothing in the mind of Mary too costly for her Savior. She brings it in an alabaster flask, an alabaster vase. Alabaster, I, I looked it up and it didn't give me much help, but it's some kind of ceramic, very costly ceramic pottery with a long neck, a long thin neck in which perfume was kept. If there was anything more expensive than the perfume on the inside, it was the container in which it was found. Mary, you, you can almost see emotion that is that is etched into her face as she makes her way towards the Savior. Her hands, perhaps, even trembling. And what we are about to witness in, in this event, ladies and gentlemen, is extraordinary for numerous reasons. People are spellbound by what they're watching this woman do. It's extraordinary for... Let me mention four reasons. First of all, you have to understand that things are quite different today in America than they were back in first century Jerusalem. Gang, uh, uh, back then, a Jewish woman would never be found at a table full of men. She would prepare the meal, she would serve the men, and then she would make her way to another room someplace and eat it. So the, the very idea that a woman is in a room with men while a meal is being enjoyed is absolutely unheard of. It's, it's much similar to the customs in some Arab countries today. Secondly, she breaks this vase, probably by snapping off the neck. And she, doesn't, she doesn't pour a small portion. She doesn't even pour half of it. She doesn't put a drop on his forehead and one on each of his feet. But she empties the whole blasted thing. Probably the most valuable thing that she owned. It, it was, in essence, her, her financial security. It was a hedge against some kind of future disaster. A family heirloom. And she pours the whole blasted thing out over him. A fragrance that flows from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And ladies and gentlemen, wherever he would go in the next few days, he would carry that smell with him. It would go with him into the Passover. It would go with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. It would follow him into the, into the house of the high priest and into Herod's hall. It would be with him when he, when he appeared before Pilate in the Praetorium. And when men were gambling over his clothes, and when soldiers would pierce his side, they would get a whiff of that aroma, of that perfume, it was in essence almost an early embalming. And then the other two factors I want to draw your attention to are given us by John. She, she cleaned his feet. Gang, you know, we don't do that anymore in the evangelical community. We don't have foot washings, do we? And I get that question about once a year. Why don't we foot wash anymore? Well, you know why, don't we, don't you? Because none of us, none of us, including the senior pastor, none of us is humble enough to do it. 
That's a demeaning act. Taking us all the way down to the feet. Uh, you know, that's not exactly the most beautiful portion of us. It is, it is an act of, of rich, pure, beautiful humility. There's no mention of rights. She's not aware that she has any rights. And then fourthly, she dries his feet with her hair. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Unbound female hair in public just didn't happen. That was a bedroom act. That was something that was reserved for the bedroom. You know, gang, um, as, as I studied this story, I, I tried to come up with words that would encapsulate and summarize all that's in it. And I, there's lots of words, and you could probably do better than I. But I want to mention just two that I think are so descriptive of what she's doing here. The first one is that it's unconditional. No conditions in her commitment to Christ. No caution. Utter abandonment. This is how she responds to being forgiven and being loved by Christ. It is as if she approaches Jesus and sings, All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. You know, I listened to a tape just recently, about 10 days ago, actually. A tape by Tony Campolo. Do you know Tony Campolo? You know that name? He is a wild bird. And uh, this, this tape was just pretty comical. Uh, if, you, if you've never heard Tony Campolo, you need to get a book of Tony Campolo because he, is, he says things. You think I'm raw? Oh, my. Gang, I hope you don't think I'm raw. But, uh, I mean, this guy, he's, he, if you know him, you know what I'm talking about. But he, he, su he suggested that the evangelical community of the 21st century needs to rewrite that hymn because we can't sing it in its present form. We ought we to sing it this way. Ten percent I give to Jesus, ten percent I freely give. I surrender ten percent. I surrender ten percent. Ten percent I give to Jesus, I surrender ten percent. You know, gang, she's really the second woman in a couple of days who had rendered to Jesus everything she had. Remember the widow with the two mites? They both knew. They both understood that everything that they owned was a gift from God. But you know, in this story, not everyone in the room liked what they saw. The magnificent of this moment was marred by the murmur of some small-minded men. Those men who watched this act were men who who made their bed under the stars and they ate meals that they picked off of fig trees and took fish out of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, what I mean, ladies and gentlemen, is that they calculated life in bits and pieces. And in their logical, two-dimensional minds, they couldn't figure out this, this extravagant display of worship. They, they, they couldn't believe that she had broken the whole blasted thing. She, she, she didn't just dip her finger in and, you know, kind of dab some all over him. That would be something. But no, she poured out the whole thing. 
They were indignant. How could she do such a thing? They were almost in shock. Look at your text, ladies and gentlemen. Look at verse 4. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? You know, I, I read someplace where jealousy is defined as the tribute that mediocrity pays to genius. Did you get that? That's, it's great. Jealousy is the tribute that mediocrity pays to genius. You know, in, in, in one sense, I want to say that's what you're seeing here. Some men who knew they couldn't match what Mary is doing, and so their only response would be that of criticism. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, those words of verse 4, John tells us, comes out of the mouth of Judas. The first recorded words of, uh, of Judas are in verse 4 there. And uh, putting on a mask of charity, Judas uh, it acts like he's angry over such waste of money. And in this instance, philanthropy at least, for this one occasion, philanthropy was nothing more than a mask to hide covetousness. There's another word that I, that I want to mention that's descriptive of this event, and that is that it's inexplicable, at least to some people. There are some who will never understand it. They'll never get it. Religious people can't figure out this kind of going on. She must be some kind of fanatic. They, uh, they, uh, they just don't feel comfortable in this kind of display of love for Jesus Christ. The only thing they understand and can relate to is something that's self-serving. So while this woman is lavishing love on her Savior, they, are, we are told, criticized her sharply. You know, gang, the Greek is very interesting. It describes a, a, uh, a snorting horse. It's almost like they were bellowing at her. And I want you to notice, I didn't read this, but I want you to notice what takes place right after this in verse 10. Judas went to the chief priest to, to betray him. So G Judas goes out to sell him. Mary is on the inside selling out. To Jesus. It was this event that taught Judas what it was that Jesus wanted from him, and he knew he couldn't give it. And so his only response is to go sell him. Now, gang, don't miss Jesus' response in verses 6 through 8. They're rich. Let her alone. He leaps to her defense. And I hope you don't miss this comment about the poor. That is, you'll always have the poor with you. What is Jesus doing? Is he putting down the poor somehow? Uh, does the poor, do the poor not matter to Jesus? Oh, my friends, we know him better than that. With, no one has been so used. No, no one has been so used to, to minister to the poor like Jesus has. But gang, there will always be a breakdown in logic in the, in the extremes of devotion when the basis of comparison is the poor. Gang, uh, practicality will always win out over beauty. And, and function will always get more votes than devotion. But Jesus is not putting poor down. But he is recognizing that the poor, the people who will ultimately minister to the poor, the greatest will be those who are in love with him. And then I want you to see verse 9. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached to the whole world, what this woman has done will also be a memorial to her. 
I, um, I want to read you a quote from Chrysostom, which is, a, I think he's a second century. Um, he was called Golden Throat. And Golden Throat says this, While countless kings and generals and the noble exploits of those whose memorials remain have sunk into silence, while those who have overthrown cities and encompassed them with walls and set up trophies and enslaved many nations are not now known as much as by hearsay, nor by name, though they have both set up statutes and established laws. Yet this woman, who was a harlot and who poured out oil in the house of some leper in the presence of a dozen men, this all men celebrate throughout the world even today. Wasted? Oh, no, ladies. Never wasted. I want to leave you with three lingering lessons of this event and I hope they'll hope there'll be things that you can take away but first of all my brother and sister in Christ there are times when extravagance is not only appropriate but demanded you know we used to laugh about a comment that was made from an American astronaut but that was before the the uh, space shuttle explosion of the, the Challenger but the story goes like this, that uh, some astronauts were being put into the nose cone of a space launch, and uh, one of the workers on the outside said, well, how, and said, well, how does that feel in there? And one of them replied, well, you know, it makes you stop and think when you realize that everything in this project was uh, uh, constructed on the lowest bid. You know, gang, I, I wonder if some Christians don't live their entire life based on the lowest bid. Let anything ever appear to be expensive, and you can count on some kind of critical response. But ladies and gentlemen, I say to you, I think there are times when the Heavenly Father leans out of heaven with a grin and says to the people of God, Folks, break a vase. Gang, must all the places where God is worshipped look mediocre? Must all the furnishings be just moderate? Must everything, must, must everything have a, be void of some semblance of beauty? Must we live all of our lives under constant restraint and self-imposed guilt for fear of being told that we're overlooking the poor? Must everything be just adequate? You know, I want to I offer you a new thought. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. If you can explain it, it may not be extravagant enough. Did you notice that Mary never offers a word of explanation for what she's done, even in the midst of her being criticized? How, how could she possibly begin to explain such extravagance? I think a better question is, why does she need to try and explain it? Because if you can explain it, it might not be extravagant enough. Gang, I want you to listen to something. It's from one of my heroes. Um, it's three minutes and 27 seconds. So I'm going to take. I want you to listen to this. This is from R.C. Sproul. It'll be coming through the microphones. Richard. Or do you want to keep your eyes closed? <laughs> when, not to pray, but to shield your eyes from bad art. I, I'm afraid that... that uh, the Christian work is considered by the world to be third-rate. We have a reputation for being shoddy, 
for being uh, philistine in our understanding of beauty. And I'm afraid that that reputation is all too often well-deserved. And I think that whatever we do in our worship is to be done to the glory of God. And there's the old hymn that we sing that goes like this, Give of your best to the Master. And I sometimes think that we are more concerned about our own appearance, decorating our own bodies, adorning our own homes to a much higher degree than we are of honoring God in worship. Now, I know every time a congregation goes through a building program in the local church, there's a crisis. <laughs> I think more people leave a church over what color they paint the church basement than over doctrinal disputes and that sort of thing. And every time a church undergoes a building project, Somebody is, li is certain to stand up and say, we shouldn't be spending money on this or on that. It'd be better to give it to missions or to feed the poor. And how can you argue with that? Whereas on the other hand, the people are saying, but we want the sanctuary to be beautiful. We want it to be a place that expresses our desire to honor the magnificence of God. We don't want an ugly church. We want a place of beauty. And do you feel that tension? I mean, it's always there, isn't it? It's so easy for us to make our churches and our sanctuaries not so much a reflection of our desire to honor God with beauty, but rather an attempt to recreate the Tower of Babel and to build a monument to ourselves and to our own affluence and to our own status. That's always a precipitous danger anytime we're building a church. But the principle is still there. That when God built a church, he was concerned about his glory and about beauty. Now, none of us in any church-building enterprise has unlimited finances. And I know that churches can be gaudy and all the rest. And that they don't have to be uh, overwhelmingly expensive. But whatever we do and whatever budget we have should be done tastefully. And with a view towards what we're trying to do in that place. That our church should be a visible expression of our desire to honor God. If you know R.C. Sproul, uh, I hoped that that would be meaningful to you. It certainly is appropriate. I want to read you one other thing. And the kids are lined up side, outside the door, so we've got to hasten. I, this first appeared in the Los Angeles Times. It's written by a, name, a lady by the name of Ann Wells. Listen. My brother-in-law opened the bottom drawer of my sister's bureau and lifted out a tissue-wrapped package. This, he said, is not a slip. This is lingerie. He discarded the tissue and handed me the slip. It was exquisite, silk, handmade and trimmed with a cobweb of lace. The price tag with an astronomical figure on it was still attached. Jan bought this the first time we went to New York, at least eight or nine years ago. She never wore it. She was saving it for a special occasion. Well, I guess this is the occasion. 
He took the slip from me and put it on the bed with the other clothes we were taking to the mortician. His hands lingered on the soft material for a moment. Then he slammed the drawer and turned to me and said, Don't ever save anything for a special occasion. Every day you're alive is a special occasion. I remembered those words through the funeral and the days that followed when I helped him and my niece attend to all the sad chores that follow an unexpected death. I thought about them on the plane returning to California from the Midwestern town where my sister's family lives. I thought about all the things that she hadn't seen or heard or done. I thought about the things that she had done without realizing that they were special. I'm still thinking about his words, and they've changed my life. I'm not saving anything. We use our good china and our crystal for every special event, such as losing a pound, getting the sink unstopped, the first camellia blossom. Someday, and one of these days, are losing their grip on my vocabulary. If it's worth seeing or hearing or doing, I want to see and hear it and do it now. I'm trying very hard not to put off, hold back, or save anything that would add laughter and luster to our lives. And every morning when I open my eyes, I tell God, this is special. Ladies and gentlemen, there comes a time. Indeed, extravagance is an exception, yes. But there comes a time when extravagance is demanded. Has there ever been anything that has flowed from our hearts out of love for Jesus Christ that could be described as unconditional, inexplicable, or extravagant? You know, gang, I think Jesus has a diary of things that really moved him. Uh, those, that widow's two mites, those were really special to him. A cup of cold water. That really moves him. And then this, this, uh, this vase of uh, perfume. What I want to know is, is there anything in that diary that he got from you? Is there any impulse in your soul to do something extravagant for the Heavenly Father? If not... Why not? That's my first lesson, ladies and gentlemen. There are times when extravagance is appropriate. Number two, nothing ever done out of love for Jesus Christ is ever wasted. You know, um, Mary broke that silly thing. She broke it. That was shocking, controversial. Oh, was everybody doing it? Was she attending some kind of vase-breaking party? No, it was just her. It was just her act of devotion to her Heavenly Father. And the results, well, I'll tell you what one of the results was, ladies and gentlemen, she could never, ever again hug that precious jar of perfume to her breast again. It was gone. She was, in essence, singing, were the whole realm of nature mine. That would be a present far too small. Because love's so amazing, so divine demands my life, my soul, my all. Love, costly, you better believe it is, ladies and gentlemen. Anything that you love is costly, even reckless. But wasted? No. Never wasted. I want to read you this. This is from Lloyd Ogilvy. 
In Mary we see the gaiety of abandoned praise. With glorious imprudence she broke the container and with loving care used the whole contents. She was liberated out of herself in a dramatic devotion. Her unimpaired impulses moved her to give a great gift. The serendipity of love had a free agent. It was not smothered with caution and prejudice. She was lifted out of arithmetic calculation to abandon compassion. She did not allow reserve to keep her from the moment which she would never come, which would never come again. There is a time when people should be careful, but there is also a time when they ought not be cautious. There is something to be said for careful saving of our resources in order to make possible a great moment of unrestrained thanksgiving. The Christian is not a tight-fisted, clenched-teeth, grim-faced person. Rather, he is one who loves and laughs and gives himself to Christ lavishly. In Mary, we are challenged by extravagant love. A certain excessiveness is an important ingredient to greatness. Wasted? Nothing ever done for Christ is ever wasted. One other thing and I'm finished. Let's imagine just for a second that we're all invited to Simon's house. Some of us don't go because you know he is a leper. <laughs> and then others come but disapprove heartily. And still there are others who are there, but you know they're really not there. And then there are others who are very uncomfortable with such displays of affection, those public displays of affection. And then there's Mary. Who do you most resemble? You know, ladies and gentlemen, for some of you, the broken base is long overdue. For some of you, who've been Christians for a while, it is time for you to do something extravagant, inexplicable, unconditional. For others of you who are here, ladies and gentlemen, if you've never met this Savior, it is time for you to give yourself to Jesus Christ. He invites you to become a Christian. What does Jesus want from us, ladies and gentlemen? He wants something extravagant. He wants something unconditional. He wants something inexplicable. He wants every last drop. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, with every emotion that I can muster, I think the Heavenly Father looks at us as the people and says, break a face. Come on. Break a face. Our Father, we do thank you for all of your kindness showed towards us. And I pray, O oh God, that you will find in the hearts of your people a Mary-like devotion, something so inexplicable, so unconditional, that it can only be described as an act of pure devotion to the Savior. Oh God, thank you for all that's gone on here today. Might your people leave here sensing 
that what they have done is indeed an act of Mary-like worship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.